1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the two authors of Campaign Finance and Political Polarization When Purists Prevail. The book is published by University of Michigan Press. The authors are Ray LaRaja and Brian Schaffner. I hope that you really enjoy the interview that I did with Ray and Brian today. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk with. Ray LaRaja and Brian Schaffner, who have written Campaign Finance and Political Polarization, When Purists Prevail. Guys, how are you doing today?
0: Very good,
2: thanks. We're doing great.
1: Yeah, uh, let's start just with some introductions, uh, because I know who you guys are, but maybe everyone else doesn't. So, Ray, do you want to briefly introduce yourself, and then, Brian, you can do the same?
0: Sure. Ray LaRaja, I'm an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I also happen to be associate director of the UMass Poll.
2: And I'm uh, Brian Schaffner, and I'm a professor at UMass Amherst and uh, director of the UMass Poll as well.
1: Great. Great. Well, it's um, I uh, this is a, a subject matter that I have some real uh, personal research interest in. So I enjoyed the book a lot. Um, the, the issue of polarization sort of has overwhelmed political science scholarship of late. Um, but but it seems like it takes some very different forms. Ray, I wonder if you would start us out by situating this work in the type of polarization that motivates this particular book.
0: Well, Brian and I talked about the book early on. We were concerned when we observed Congress. How the parties seemed to be so far apart uh, and they couldn't come to any compromise. And we asked ourselves, how did they get to this place? How did they get to the point where they were so far apart? And there are a lot of explanations political scientists are looking at. But we noticed that a lot of these people arrived in Congress with the support of uh, donors and activists who are highly ideological. And so that got us to thinking that maybe money is part of this puzzle. Maybe the the fact that the way these people raise money and from whom they raise it from is causing uh, people to arrive in places like Congress or American legislatures who are quite far apart from the average voter.
1: Now, Brian, you you argue that there are really two important groups to think about: the the pragmatists and the purists. So, who are the pragmatists? Who are the purists? And and as important, how how do they relate to the ways that parties behave?
2: Yeah. So we 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 set this up, and of course, those are ideal types, and and uh, everyone has a little bit of pragmatism and a little bit of purists in them, but. Um, the idea is that the pragmatists are, are the kind of the the the, the career party operatives, the people who really want to win elections. Um, and so they're, they're the biggest thing driving them is uh how to get candidates out there who are going to have the best chance of winning an election, how they're going to get a majority of seats in the legislature. Um, the peers, on the other hand, are the people who are really motivated by the issues, the, the people who are uncompromising. You know, you could think about uh, in terms of thinking about an example of purists. You could think about members of the Tea Party, people who are willing to primary uh, you know, a, a candidate who has a much better chance of winning a general election because they think that individual has compromised on issues that are important to them.
1: Now, let's, let's talk about political money because this book is not just about polarization. It's, it's really also about uh, where money comes from. And, and you guys write in Chapter 2 that donors tend to be more extremist than the rest of the American electorate. Uh, Ray, what is the evidence to support this assertion?
0: Well, we, uh, we used a lot of surveys um, and some new data that came online. And we noticed when we compared the people who donate money to the people who are actually the, the rest of the electorate, there was this strong what we call bimodal distribution with very few people in the middle of the ideological uh, core, whereas voters tended to be more towards the middle. And so that's what we noticed right away. And, you know, it's no different for even primary voters. If you look at people who vote in primaries, they tend to have that same distribution. So these are the people who decide, the primary voters and the donors, who is actually going to uh, run for office and win elections. They're the gatekeepers, so to speak. And so that's what we were after here. Um, we wanted to see which sets of donors uh, preferred which types of candidates and what were their motivations coming into these elections.
2: And, you know, Heath, just to double down on that, the, um, you know, one thing you'll hear candidates say a lot is, well, uh, Bernie Sanders said this in the debate this weekend that, um, well, I, all my money comes from small donors, you know, as if that sort of inoculates him from this influence. But, you know, what you find is small donors are just as polarized as large donors that, um, you know, they, they give less money, but that doesn't make them any less purist than the large donors. And so, um, you know, people often make this distinction between large and small donors, but, um, in the book, we talk a lot about the fact that you know all donors are extremists.
1: Now, you raised the uh, presidential election, and much of the focus of campaign finance uh, debate is is at the national level but but your book is a little bit different from this. Um, I wonder if you guys can talk a little bit about how state governments uh, regulate campaign finance and how these laws differ and Maybe a couple of examples of the specific ways that states limit campaign finance because it works differently than the the single national standard that we have within the sorry, at the federal level
0: okay well at the st- we decided to look at the states because uh, there was there's fifty of them and it's it's easier to see how things change and what the impacts are so the states are a great laboratory, as many political scientists will tell you, and some states don't uh, hardly regulate uh, their campaign finance. I mean, they have disclosure, but they pretty, some states have no limits, for example. You can give as much as you want to a candidate or to a party. Other states are even more strict than Congress. In places like Colorado, there's very low limits on how much you can give. So we liked like to use that variation and uh, try to develop some theories about how the laws impact who can donate to whom and what impact that has on who actually ends up in the state legislature, with the hope that as we develop this, we can generalize to even Congress and say, hey, the way Congress is regulating itself uh, w- with the campaign finance laws could be causing some of this polarization that we see through state laws in the states.
1: Now, now, most most would assume something sort of different. And and I think part of what's so interesting your, about your book is, is the very different take on something that um, sort of there has been a conventional wisdom that has formed. And so most would assume that these campaign finance laws make things better in some ways. Um, you guys find something quite different. So uh, maybe, Brian, you could describe a little bit about what you discover about the differences between these groups of states uh, that, that regulate in different ways in terms of polarization of the legislature.
2: Yeah. So the, you know, the, the thing we really look at is what effect do these uh, campaign finance laws have on the extent to which legislatures polarize? So we're looking at you know, across 50 states, we're also looking over a couple of decades um, of time. And so we're, we're looking at a lot of variance, both in terms of uh, across states and over time. And um, what we specifically are interested in is how do states that basically allow parties to raise and spend as much as they want compared to states that put tight restrictions on uh, what parties can raise and spend. Um, and what we find is that where parties um, are untethered by uh, campaign finance restrictions, polarization uh, is less uh, in the legislature than in states where uh, parties are restricted. And our, you know, our explanation for that is that essentially what parties are doing is they're investing in more moderate candidates, candidates who are going to be more competitive in general election campaigns. Whereas um, when parties are restricted, then the money flows through other, um, in- other types of groups and other and uh, in- individuals or whoever else. Um, and those other, um political actors tend to be far more on the purest end of things and therefore they're investing in um, candidates who are further off into the ideological extremes.
0: So that's a really important point I want to emphasize is that the approach of many reformers to campaign finance is let's set some limits to prevent the kind of quid pro quo corruption. And so they put limits on candidates and they put limits on parties which are very closely connected to candidates. So You know, we have clever election lawyers who figure out other ways for the money to flow. And that opens up opportunities for other interest groups, for ideological donors to to get directly involved in elections through this so-called outside spending. And uh, that, we say, by focusing only on the anti-corruption efforts, by setting limits low, you're actually system-wide creating uh, some problems for the party system and eventually for governing. And that's, that's a major point of our book and this this overturns
1: i don't know if it's a conventional wisdom, but it's certainly a, a, a widely held belief and 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 quite clearly the opposite of the the intended effect of those that were trying to change campaign finance laws is is that in fact the right interpretation that that the the unintended consequences of campaign finance laws um are are more significant than the intended consequences is that one might interpret your findings?
2: Well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, at, at a basic level there and, and again, the idea is that people have focused so much on trying to limit money. And, you know, our basic point is not we're not the first ones to make this point is that you, you can't keep money out of the system. The best thing we're, we're arguing you can do is you can encourage it to go through some uh, types of actors and, and not through other types of actors. And so, you know, again, if you want to project this onto to the national level, uh, you might think about the distinction being, do, would we rather money go through the parties who ha- who report regularly to the FEC, uh, who tend to be um, far more transparent about raising and spending money? Or would we rather money go through these shadow um, super PACs um, or other types of groups uh, where it's much harder to trace the money? Uh, these groups appear and then disappear overnight, and therefore it's hard to hold them accountable.
1: And, and so, um, so overall, you know, it,
2: it's, it's true that, um,
1: you know, I think... You know, but, no, I guess, uh, and we're, we're, I'm losing uh, the connection a little bit, but but I guess just taking a step back, is, is this an argument for no restrictions or uh, an argument for a different set of restrictions? A different set of restrictions. What might those restrictions look like?
0: Well, it, you know, in our book, we say... You know, in a perfect world, uh, we, you know, if, if, uh, if parties had more money, and that could include not having restrictions, we'd see a better system. Now, of course, there are concerns about that. People are worried about the parties being corrupted. But our point, our larger point is not enough money flows to the political parties in the United States. And you know, what we're saying about the political parties is, is, again, Brian said this, it's nothing new. Political scientists have been saying for decades that political parties are important. Um, and yet that really hasn't caught on with the reform movement. There, there's been a century-long tradition of being anti-party, and uh, it is to the detriment of our political system sometimes. You know, the good intentions of keeping corruption out of the system at the expense of having robust parties has had some some pretty bad effects. So we're trying to bring parties back into the, into the picture, and paradoxically, people are saying, oh, the parties are... They're, they're 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 too strong programmatically, paradoxically, what we're saying is if you strengthen the parties organizationally, give the professionals the pragmatists more influence you're actually going to have parties that are not as sharply divided on many issues
1: now Brian, I wonder if you um or ray you can you can talk about some of the reaction that you've gotten to the book so far. Have you gotten reactions from um uh, reformers who, who for, for whom this, this these kinds of findings might run counter to some of their understandings of how things work? Have they uh, responded in any ways? Have, uh, have party activists responded in some ways? Have you gotten feedback on, on your findings?
2: Uh, yes, uh, we have, in fact, and uh, on both the positive and negative side of things. And I think, you know, there's there's a set of reformers. Uh, particularly, people who were involved in really pushing the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which we at least implicitly are critiquing, I think, in this book, um, who um, have definitely uh, sort of argued against what we're saying in this um, in this book that that um, that they they think it's that you know enabling the parties is not the right approach; that we should continue to find ways to um, to plug holes, uh, limit money. Um, you know, they, they decry, of course, Citizens United and, and decisions like that, which have let money flow into the system. Um, and we're saying, OK, well, here's the state of the play. I, I, th- I think we're having different conversations. We're saying here's you know, the state of the playing field is there is a Citizens United. There are these First Amendment uh, uh, rulings that, you know, have, have made it so that money is flowing into the system right now. And given that, you know, what we're saying is we want money to flow a certain way. Um, not the way it's flowing right now. Um, and so we've you know, I think we're in some ways having a different conversation, but we've definitely seen critiques on that end of things. On the other side, there's um, a growing group of um, uh, scholars and uh, uh, policy a- uh, actors in Washington who are increasingly interested in um, our findings in, in conjunction with some other findings uh, in terms of the extent to which they would uh, potentially uh, push a new kind of transactional politics, and, and the argument is that all of these uh, focus focuses on um, limiting money and transparency and everything have really made it very hard for elected officials to reach compromise. Um, and uh, so they actually kind of like our findings. Uh, these are people like Jonathan Rauch, for example, uh, at the Brookings Institution, who who point to our findings and say, "Look, here's an example of you know well you know well-meaning reforms have maybe had the wrong effects. Um, they've actually hurt the ability of elected officials to compromise, um, and uh, and so they they've actually liked our findings. But we've certainly gotten a lot of um, feedback on both sides of things.
1: Uh, I I can only imagine uh, how, how much feedback you would get, and and uh, and I would imagine it varies greatly in, in how heated it uh, it actually is.
0: So if I add one uh, more thing to that,
1: you may, you may yeah.
0: So you know we're not trying to. Fix the system. We're trying to improve it, and we're saying this is a this is a realistic path. Um, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So we're trying to convince people um, we've gone a little bit too far down this road of trying to prevent all money from keeping out of politics. Um, and it's understandable to us. We say in the book, you know, it's, you know, this book is not about preventing corruption. Um, you know, there there are some possible other solutions, and at the end of the book, we suggest there could be a role for public financing, not necessarily in the ways that other reformers are are doing. If they want to have public financing go directly to the candidates, which we think continues this uh, dynamic of polarization, we're suggesting why why not have public financing go through the parties and let them play out this role of being a more moderating force in the political system.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed the book a lot and and learned a lot. And tried to incorporate in some of the stuff that I'm working on. Is is there a, a a book in the future for the two of you? Are you guys working together on a new project or something separate uh, from each of you? Ray, right? is there a, is there another thing coming up from you?
0: Well, I mean, I have to say, I enjoyed writing this book with Brian. We met on several Fridays at the local uh, Starbucks to uh, to write this book, and it was uh, pleasurable experiences being uninterrupted and being able to go back and forth and talk about our findings and so I would we haven't talked uh, seriously that, but I would love to do another uh, work with him.
2: Yeah. The, the, uh, now, I guess this podcast will be brought to you by Starbucks. But yes, we <laughs> we, we uh, I
1: think only in my dream. Yeah, the, uh,
2: the 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 um, local Starbucks has been hurting ever since we finished the book, I think, uh, <laughs> from missing our uh, our patronage on Friday uh, on Fridays, which, you know, uh, was basically every Friday for a couple of years. And, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, I um books and you know a book ideas in similar veins in terms of um thinking again about um you know you know reforms meaning meaningful reforms that have gone wrong and um for for one um one thing we've talked a lot about is you know uh participation and, and opening avenues of participation and the thing we find repeatedly uh, we looked at we saw this with small donors, but we see it with almost every kind of political activity. It really just attracts the purists and it um, it, you know, it affects political outcomes in a way that maybe is unintended, that maybe there shouldn't be so many um, paths for the same extremists to participate. And maybe, you know, if we if we scaled back a little bit on um, on avenues for uh, for um, people to participate, it might actually look a lot more representative of the adult population. I think. Uh, we're in the early stages of thinking about what a book like that would um, look like, but um, that's one idea we've had, which I think is somewhat related to what we're saying in this book.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting book. Uh, again, the title of the book is "Campaign Finance and Political Polarization: When Purists Prevail." Uh, Raymond Laraja and, and Brian Schaffner, the authors. University of Michigan uh, Press is uh, the publisher. Available widely. Brian, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Ian.